Rebecca Wanzo is a professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and an affiliate professor of American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. She's the author of The Suffering Will Not Be Televised, African-American Women and Sentimental Political Storytelling, a book that thinks through the kinds of storytelling conventions that African-American women and social beings in general are compelled to use to make their suffering legible to specific institutions in the United States. Her most recent book, The Content of Our Caricature, African-American Comic Art and Political Belonging, is a remarkable study of the many ways that black cartoonists have used racialized caricatures to contest and rework constructions of ideal citizenship. That book, which is the main focus of our conversation here, received the Katherine Singer Kovach Book Prize, the Charles Hatfield Book Prize, and won the award for Best Scholarly or Academic Work from the Will Eisner Comic Industry Awards. Wanzo recalls being told that her subject, in the content of our caricature, had basically been exhausted. Imagine being questioned about whether there was enough content for a scholarly book within the history of black comics. It speaks to the ways that, as she points out, comics are still seen as somewhat juvenile, and also the ways in which black comics in particular are not understood as having their own vital, varied history. The book is a rigorous, insightful study of that history, bursting with insights and serious provocations. It definitely deserves all of the acclaim that it's received. It's interesting to think that Wanzo struggled to get the cover image for the book approved by the publisher. This striking image from Jeremy Love's Bayou perfectly captures the concerns of her text. As she puts it, one of the questions she's asking again and again in the book is, what is this black creator trying to do with this representation of a figure, in the case of Bayou, the figure of the Gollywog, that has a specific racist representational history? In the coda for the content of our caricature, Wanzo talks about the Marvel film Black Panther and its foundations in the crucial story arc surrounding Killmonger from the comics. She explains how the transformation and rehabilitation of Black Panther shows us how the history of representation and appropriation really is complex and stresses that there is never, quote, a homogenous black audience response. Things are not, she says, transparently always good and always bad. There are always things that have some issues and, you know, it isn't necessary for us to explode in a divisive debate that pits us against each other whenever someone points out those issues or even says that in spite of some of these issues, they still take pleasure in the representation. She argues that we really need to slow the process of interpretation and critical conversation down and resist the tendency toward immediate condemnation. Cancel culture, as we've now titled it, is, in her words, subsuming so many different things that it's become a useless analytic tool. It's also a dizzyingly ironic title, given that those that frequently decry so-called cancel culture namely those on the right, are at the vanguard of canceling huge parts of culture that they deem threatening. Wanzo explains that in the contemporary context, we're seeing the right in particular, and maybe most powerfully in the United States, attacking not only critical race theory, but all of history and any discussion of discrimination. The dominant form that cancellation is taking today vilifies any media that from Wanzo's perspective, quote, might make white heterosexual children from heteronormative families uncomfortable. She makes it clear that this push exposes the fact 
that these groups fundamentally don't care about people who are not this ideal child that they've decided is American. We talk about the ways that the mere presence of people who are not cisgendered and white in superhero stories still provokes strong reactions. Wanzo says that this spontaneous reaction to difference is deeply troubling, but it also shows the degree to which, quote, the space of representation is a big battleground and it matters. It reveals all kinds of conflicts, she says, that we have culturally, and it's a space under which, quote, various politics around inclusion and the nation and political belonging play out. This is a really incredible book that you've written. Um, the content of our caricature, African-American comic art and political belonging. Um, I kind of wanted to start by just saying that title because, you know, there's a lot even in the title. Um, the choice of saying comic art, for example, I think is significant. One of the things you say early on in the book is that comics are still seen as infantile. Um, and you're stressing this is comic art. So I don't know, like there's just so much ab about the book that I think is a useful corrective to certain tendencies within comic studies. And, uh, you know, it rethinks comic literacy beyond, I guess, specifically the long lasting influence of Scott McCloud um, and that book, Understanding Comics. You know, it's it, you explicitly reject his appeals to like universality in the book. Um, and I, I wondered if you could speak to that in terms of like, the book's stated goal of looking for ways of resisting what you call racist visual imperialism, which you say is like maybe harder to overcome than that racist imperialism that that seeps into our language. So I like I wondered if you could maybe because it's like a speculative claim in some ways to say like this this thing of like an iconography is harder to decolonize as it were than even our language. Like I wondered if you could maybe you know speak to that at all. Well, I don't know that I specifically say, because I'm, I'm very careful about hierarchies, so like comics mm. close this, or this is more than that. Um, I mean, I, I do think that the visual is just as embedded as language, um, and that there is also a a way that it, in certain kinds of forms, um, in media or genres, the revision of the visual is can be harder because foundationally the construction is often a negative stereotype or negative caricature, or by turns, the sort of idealized caricature that other kinds of bodies can never catch up to, right? Or can mm -hmm. never be like. Uh, so I do think that and I don't know if you followed this recent controversy. There's this, uh, it was not recent, but someone, there was something on, on Twitter about uh, a game um, that's often played in, in Finland. This about that has like African colonialism is, is its central tenet. And then when you, uh, you know, if you, make a certain move you end up a slave for a while and so this black woman who's in finland was trying to talk to a teacher about the ways that she understood this as a racist game and then really got a lot of pushback um and 
you know, from the teacher who's just like, that's ridiculous, but also a whole bunch of other people were like, this is just part of our childhood. This is just a representation that has nothing to do with race or racism, or this is real history. And I think the ways that the visual sort of embedded as something that can be like a nostalgic, pleasurable object, or something that's just considered humorous and thus not possessing any political valence is pretty deeply embedded. Um, globally and how people think about the visual. And so that makes it harder to combat in some ways than language, even though we see a lot of pushback around language. Um, But I wouldn't say it's always this, but certainly there's a way in which people will dismiss the visual sometimes um, when it's convenient ideologically as something that has less import or doesn't, isn't saying what something explicitly is saying in language. Right. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And I think like there's there's tons of examples of that. Like I think of the um, the play Slav, S-L-A-V, that got a lot of um, attention for focusing on the kind of like etymological roots of slavery and, and you know, it, depicting slavery with with all white actors that mm-hmm. that play got removed, got canceled. Mm-hmm. I think about, you know, the ways in which uh, Spike Lee responded to Tarantino making, as, as Lee put it, um, the history of slavery into a spaghetti Western in Django Unchained and how like that film was just an enormous success, Tarantino's most successful film. And, and largely because, as, as if I'm reading it correctly, there's this way in which people are really defensive of their pleasure, right? Like, and, and don't necessarily want to ask, like, why am I laughing at this hyper real violence? You know, that that's a a really interesting starting point for thinking about the the ways in which like your book dwells with images that are often uh, incredibly unsettling. Like you include the images in the book too, that are, yeah, like um, <laughs> alarming at times. And, and you're like the, the whole goal is for you, you, you want to insist that we not turn away. Um, and so I, I definitely want to come back to that, but like, I guess just practically in terms of research, I'm curious, or I was curious when I was reading the book about how you just located these notoriously ephemeral books, how you got into this, the study of this, um, you know, what maybe like what were the, what were particularly obscure or hard to find strips? Because you note that there are times when um, black artists are not really included necessarily uh, in comic art, especially at times where you might expect them to be the most included, like during the underground comic scene? Well, my first job was at Ohio State University, which has the biggest archive of comics and cartoon related material in the world. Um, So that was a big help. Um, And so even when I left, since I'm from Ohio, when I would go home for the holidays or something, I'd say, hey, you know, I just email the curators, I'm coming, I'm going to look at some things. And then they often would have stuff that they hadn't even cataloged yet. Um, and so I, you know, one thing I would say is that a lot of the stuff I'm looking at, I mean, there, there's a blend of the familiar, um, to various audiences. Like there's some things like Kyle Baker's Nat Turner that's been often written about. Um, Mm -hmm. certainly people know who Ollie Harrington is in certain fields. I think in black visual culture is one of the few cartoonists people know. Aaron Magruder and the Boondocks, obviously very familiar. Um, sort of superhero comics is sort of a, a very common research interests. So the people who knew black superhero comics know those things. And and what I want to make clear about my book is that obviously part of what I'm thinking about are, are representations that can be considered stereotypical um, or racist and, and 
black that are produced by black folks like and that and why they might choose to deploy them to go mm-hmm. to, so to go back to Django Unchained which was Tarantino's film but there were some collaborations um with some black folks and I I have various issues with that with with Tarantino's project in general in terms of race but I do think it's important to note that film as something that there are a lot of black people who love that film and there's some black people who don't like it's not there's not mm-hmm. a homogenous response and that's why I'm trying to get people to think through you know when they see a a representation that is a caricature you know what is it that people are trying to do with it? It's not always for racist purposes. And sometimes it even could be for anti-racist purposes, but we might still see that there's there's something troubling about it. Um, and maybe sometimes the thing that's troubling about it is the point. But to really sort of practice, you know, better literacy, media literacy and 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 interpretive skills in terms of how we encounter them. Um, but back to finding them, um, you know, the things that are less familiar, I mean, I think there are very few, there are very few works that some people had never seen, except maybe some of a few of the editorial cartoons. I think Sam Millay, um, who was a editorial cartoonist for the Pittsburgh Courier, um, I was able to have some of his original art because it was donated to the Billy Ireland uh, but he also lost a lot of work in the fire. So I used some stuff from ProQuest. So there's some people who don't know his work. Um, the underground comics, I mean, there were people who are more familiar with, say, Larry Fuller and Grass Green because they have these superhero comics, which honestly were less interesting to me than their underground work. Um, and so no one had really substantively written about White Whore Funnies, um, which I'd written about. There's been a little work on Grass Green, but not much. But yeah, I found those works in um, Ireland and I bought some online. Um, so the archive and archivist are your best friends on this front. Like they'll point you sure. to things that are important. Um, but in comic circles, there are people that there, there's certainly a lot of people I'm writing about that people know. Um, but for a general audience, uh, I think that um, people who are just generally interested in black visual culture or might be interested in comics, but don't really know much about black comics. I was often told, like some people would say, well, oh, something's been done about this because there are other books about black comics. I'm like, mm, not my argument. Or is there really enough to write a whole book on comics? I heard that multiple times. Hmm. So, uh, or on black comics or once in a fellowship proposal I got, is comics worth a book? Um, so it's, Ouch. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's like, I think it was worth a book. It's we're worth many books. There are a lot of books yeah. on comics. So uh, get over yourself, reader, whoever you were. Um, <laughs> but it's, so there, there's a combination of things that are familiar to certain audiences and then unfamiliar to others, even some artists, some audiences that are comic scholars. And so my intent was to hopefully reach various groups that you know, really don't know the material. Everyone from art historians to general black visual cultural people to um, people who are interested in comics, but don't know much about black comics. And like the thing too about the book is like, it's not just about comics, right? It's about the history of oppression and the, the history of resistance to oppression and the politics of pleasure. And, you know, in terms of Malai's output, it's also about the ways in which a certain kind of it seems like black middle class was fearful of this kind of radical flank, um, these radical political acts um, and their implications um, for, for 
you know, to use the subtitle of the book, um, political belonging and political identification. Uh, you know, like it's it's all of these things, and and comics is the kind of ground, the kind of springboard for thinking about those those things. Um, and I like that you sort of gesture to the fact that, you know, one of one of the major insights of the book is this idea that we need to maybe foreground the reader's desires and the gaze uh, in terms of like actually decoding these images accurately um, or capaciously, and and so there's this there's this like willingness to be open to, for that reason, uh, the so-called negative or, or images that you concede could potentially re-traumatize. Um, you know, these the comics are so often these visceral carnal, like, you know, expressions. And in particular, I mean, like the, uh, the image on the cover just really grabs the reader to begin with. And um, unfortunately the, the source slips my mind, but it's like, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about the figure of the gollywog, um, which is this part of sort of like racist popular culture that, that you explore in detail and say like, this is symbolic of, you know, intra-racial violence and its complex sources in like white colonial violence. Um, you know, the text says it shows like so much in terms of it, it theorizes it as a weaving of time and space in comics. You say it's like, the gollywog in these images is 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 about not being determined by the past. Um, I wondered if you if you could like elaborate on that a little bit more, in relationship to like that section of the book's specific discussion of the gutter as a rich site of analysis when closely reading comics. I think that's not not necessarily well understood either. So uh, that comes from Jeremy Loves Bayou. <clears throat> Right. Uh, and he's actually finishing it. There were two volumes initially, and he's doing a third volume. And so hopefully it'll um, come out maybe sometime next year. But he's he's been um, working on the third and final volume and will be back in print, which I'm, I'm thrilled by. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thrilled to be able to use it on the cover. It really captured to me what I think my book was doing um, about our relationship to um histories of racial representation um, and racial violence as, and, and histories, um, racist histories, uh, and, and what the comics medium might be able to do in relation to it, um, those pages and Bayou. Um, and I actually struggled a bit to get it approved um, by my publisher for the cover because they were a little uncomfortable with the image. And some people are, like they're really uncomfortable with the image, but I think it's it's a perfect cover. And yeah, I am to go back also to what you said in relationship to thinking about the gutter. I am interested in in reader desire, but I actually don't understand myself as saying, well, it's like idiosyncratic reading practices or individual reading practices or what matters in interpretation. I actually understand myself as really trying to encourage people to think about form that I think that actually people will have like these immediate reactions to representations that we can understand, but, but there can also be a formalist approach to thinking about these representations about whether or not they're actually injurious um, just consistently across time in every space, depending on what the black creators are trying to do with it. So people would be like, why are you replicating a gollywog? Well, what is this black creator trying to do with mm this representation that has this horrible negative uh, racist representational history. Um, And a lot of it is, you know, in the comics medium um, is in thinking about how 
time works. And um, there's a lot of discussion in comics about temporality as being central to it. And I'm really interested in what happens when you think about temporality and identity and interpretation. So what happens if we understand the gutter as we always have is this in, in comic studies is this place that's indicating, you know, the passage of time, um, comic readers, you know, have to be active in certain ways to sort of move towards closure and the McLeod language. Um, but what if we understand the gutter when we have what I call an identity hermeneutic or we're using identity as a way of reading form, we think about, okay, identity is telling us something about how time is working, right? It's telling mm -hmm. us that, the past, the present, the future are here at the same time in, in general in comics on a page, but it often, but with identity, it can also help us think about the content of the past and the present, the future. When you're, when people want to tell you the past is somewhere else, like what happens if we understand ourselves as living with the past and the possibility of the future at the same time in the present and thinking about things like racist histories and how the comics page lends itself to that um, given the gutter. So I was, I, I think that Bayou does a beautiful job in, in that section of the comic that helps us think about that. I think so too. And like, it's about the kind of enduring power of these images and, and how often they exceed that reductive reading. And, and so, yeah, thinking about form first and deciding whether something's injurious, thinking about this like active reading process that comics readers are performing, it takes us away from, um, a certain relationship to, this kind of visual imperialism that wants to kind of like freeze images in time. And you talk a lot about that kind of freezing effect, especially in relationship to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the way that he's, he's represented in the kind of American popular imaginary as a celebration of waiting and civility. And he's like frozen in that state. Um, this is something that, yeah, like is, is characteristic, especially of, this kind of nefarious repurposing of King by the Republican right um, and reducing him to one phrase that you, you dwell with at length, this notion of the content of our character that's been used by the GOP as a way of arguing against the, you know, restless um, and, and, and unsettled relationship to history uh, that, you know, is often reduced on the right to like critical race theory, right? Like, King has been reappropriated and co-opted uh, by conservatives as a way of sort of like, um, you know, claiming a certain kind of rabid neoliberal individualism or something. Mm -hmm. And you you explicitly, you know, present Hochi Anderson's depiction of, of King's life in opposition to that kind of freezing effect. Um, and I guess like it's it's a way of kind of asking you to expand on this idea that comics can helpfully get us to avoid a certain like idealization um that that can be used for all kinds of different political purposes right like that that iconography of idealization is exactly not what what i guess anderson is doing in king um right and, and i guess like in thinking about this this idea of king being reduced to this one like soundbite i wondered if you could like expand on how that is is linked to the ways that your book in emphasizing the content of our caricature is trying to kind of move us into a discussion of like the, the indeterminacy of these images, right? Like the fact that they are constantly reproduced through representation rather than fixed at one moment in time. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that 
part of what I'm interested in, and again, I'm very careful to say like only comics does this. I mean, obviously lots of people have, have in various media from plays to literature to essays um, and to, you know, scholarship itself have pushed against this caricature of King as this kind of ideal figure who never thought about violence and just also the idea that someone who doesn't consider violence makes him more ideal. That's also just, it's just untrue. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he had a gun um, because he was worried about people coming after his family that, you know, and is always about being patient, et cetera. And, and that, and I, you know, living in St. Louis, you know, I'm, you know, we're 15 minutes from Ferguson. So, you know, this is, you know, where, you know, the protests were in the city as well as Ferguson itself, and that it's, uh, I heard so many times, uh, you know, what we really, from from various white people, it's like, what we really need right now is a Martin Luther King. And it's like, really, that's that's what you feel is needed for these protests. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, people are um, protesting in relation, like very, in the very similar ways to what they did in the 19. 19- uh, 60s. So I don't think that this and 70s. So I don't think that this is actually all that unfamiliar. And King was both um, engaged or involved in some of these protests that you might consider less savory, but also like blamed for when there were um, protests that had property destruction, which I sort of uh, also point out in in the book. And so I think that the that what King does um, the Hochi Anderson is that it, it what's what's so great about it is that it takes other media like the photograph um, and just sort of the the narrative of him or uh, you know that we might have other kinds of sort of filmic representations newspaper stories and there's this sort of collage and montage aspect and then he plays with form a little bit to call attention to the constructedness of King. Um, so it's, it's, you do get a sense of stillness when you're looking at it, but the stillness is defamiliarized in a bit. Um, so I do think there's something really specific in contributing to the sort of resisting the hagiography of King, you know, he was a great man, obviously. Um, and so essential for us, our political history, but he's, you know, he contributes to this, this, uh, means of like adding complexity to who he was as a person. Um, in this really rich documentary uh, inflected way um, while playing with the idea of, of the document, the truth and the flatness of the black and white documentary and representations of, of um, who he was and how he's just like plucked, like moments are plucked. Um, so I think it's just really, it just contributes to a whole bunch of work that's doing this, but there is something about, what he's doing as an artist that I think um, is really worth um, taking up in terms of what he can do visually to push against it um, in ways that um, maybe some other mediums don't always do. Yeah, I see that for sure. Like there's something about his, his specific, like I think he uses these, these six panel grids, but you know, and you point out that often characters are sort of like, um, you know, facing you down. There's this confrontational quality, like this vibrating intensity to the form. 
Um, you know, there's an intensity there that, I mean, HBO released, I think a few years ago, a, a documentary about King called King in the Wilderness mm-hmm. that's similarly an attempt to kind of like restore a different, a different relationship of complexity to King's legacy. Um, you know, so I, I, again, like your book kind of comes back to this taking pleasure almost in, in indeterminacy itself, like just trying to uh, inject a level of complexity into these like established narratives. Um, you know, you talk about Frederick Douglass extolling a certain kind of heroic violence. I didn't know personally that that was part of Douglass's story, that, you know, rising up against this, you know, slave owner Covey was this defining moment. Like, that's just not necessarily something that's talked about frequently because it's it's difficult. And similarly, like I mentioned Malai, like there's this fear of radical acts in his editorial cartoons. And I mean, that, that persists to this day. Like you're talking about Ferguson as this, this moment where the, the level, like the threshold for political violence is, is met uh, in, in like popular discourse. We get that in, here in Nova Scotia as well. Um, you know, uh, one of my colleagues here at Mount St. Vincent University, L. Jones, um, was depicted on this like notorious right-wing magazine as in this kind of like racist caricature mm. uh, because she is, you know, an activist, because she is, you know, advocating for defunding the police. She's she's raising issues mm-hmm. um, in ways that are seen as uncivil. And so Frank Magazine's response was to, you know, employ this racist caricature mm-hmm. um, to dismiss her. Mm-hmm. You talk in the book about how the very notion of stereotype comes from the like technology of print itself. Um and so, like, it's just interesting to think about how comic artists, um, as like a way that newspapers were originally sold in some ways, are, um, you know, again, like injecting a certain complexity into that. It can obviously go in, in, in a variety of different ways. There's no, like, deterministic quality to it by any means. It's all about this kind of, uh, to you know, this kind of intensity that comic art can potentially have, not to, like, idealize it as a form. But, you know, when you talk about Kyle Baker's Nat Turner, you talk about the like, def, you know, defying the privileging of nonviolent violent resistance, you know, and, and how the specificity of that story kind of defies a generic horror. You know, it's, it's not about that kind of uh, simplistic relationship to violence, um, which I see is so valuable. And I wonder if like you, it's mentioned only briefly, but there's this like distinction that you make in some ways in the book between what Anderson is doing in King, for example, and the sort of cinematic dynamism of uh, John Lewis and Nate Powell's March. Um, and, and, you know, like March is a book that is primarily celebrating just the power of speech and these interventions of, of like public oration and so on. Did you think about writing about March at all? What was your kind of attitude toward that book, which is so unbelievably successful? It's become a kind of educational resource in so many places. Well, I mean, it it wasn't a book I would include because the the negative caricature, or the grotesque, the stereotype isn't the aesthetic mode that right. um, is used in that book for because it's it, and and I think that that's you know sort of getting that across in terms of people expect like you we should talk about Jackie Horms or where why are there not more black women I mean it's, it's the book is really focused on people who are using a kind of aesthetic or playing with caricature in a way that. Um, I think is, you know, would be useful to think about, but there are lots of people who use other kinds of forms. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, March is a, you know, a, you know, traditionally, I think 
sort of celebratory sort of life narrative, you know, about, yeah. you know, it was like a biopic. Yeah. yeah, so rights, you know, civil rights narrative. Um, so you know, which I wouldn't say is not it's not only about speech, but it is um, you know, it's this life narrative of an activist, right? And so mm-hmm. um and I, I think that, you know, it does a lot of really important work. It's really useful pedagogically. I've been trying to pay attention to see where they're trying to ban it <laughs> because yeah. I mean, that's the thing about like the right. It's not really critical race theory that, I mean, they're supposedly coming after that. They're really just coming after history in the U S like they're coming after yeah. history, uh, like history or any discussion of discrimination, you know, and comics are often uh, a target of it. Um, so, I mean, things like class act, which, you know, they're saying it's teaching critical race theory just because it's about a black child in a predominantly white school and they're saying it's critical race theory. Like it's it's really, um, mm-hmm. there's really some repugnant book banning going on right now in this country. Um, so, I mean, I, so yeah, I didn't talk about March because it's, you know, it's just working in a mode that is, was less the focus uh, of, of my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's interesting, like just the kind of willy nilly way that this term critical race theory is now being uh, deployed to cancel particular, you know, like um, troubling narratives that are just true to history. I mean, um, there is, you know, uh, Roy Wood Jr., this stand up comedian, talks about how like he he has this like spontaneous emotional reaction to sort of particular civil rights uh, narratives, like films especially. And they are like he's he's kind of joking about the fact that they are so kind of openly manipulative, and and there's a kind of maybe Afro pessimist like mode as it were to them um, that is about providing that emotional catharsis. And I think to some extent March falls into that category. Um, it aspires to that sort of filmic quality, um, but it is it is problematic in ways that like your book only gestures to. Like you talk about the depiction of the damaged bodies of slaves um, and how those images suggests that they remain in place again kind of freezing them as this kind of you know somehow an, a, a, a part of the past that can be assimilated that is is easier somehow to dwell with than these books that are more about the kind of persistence of that um violence into the present and i guess i wanted to ask about your own kind of position on you can you know you talked about the banning of books you know this this notion of cancel culture it's not as though you're talking about it in the book it's too it's too nebulous an idea in some ways to, to take seriously. But at the same time, there is also this, this effort that I, I just spontaneously feel like you would resist of to kind of erase traumatic images um, rather than like dwelling with them, trying to decode them or critique them. Like just recently on Twitter, you, um, you mentioned uh, the, the pseudo controversy around turning red and you kind of gestured to the fact that the cinema blend review should have stayed online, um, you know? So like in terms of your your feelings toward this this culture, as it were, of cancellation, do you take like Roxanne Gay's point that this is really about, um, you know, uh, assigning consequences, like she calls it consequence culture, assigning consequences for images and narratives and people um, that hurt, that do violence? Or do you see it as, I don't know how to frame this question, to be honest, like, well, I mean, so yeah. just what I'd say is I, I almost never use the phrase cancel culture, 
mm-hmm. unless I, I don't know, unless I have to in relationship to something someone asked me about. But I mean, I because I think that yeah, yeah. it's meant to, it's including and subsuming so many things under it that it is a useless analytic term at this point. Yeah. Um, so on one hand, there are, so there's the way in which cancel culture, quote unquote, is used to talk about people who've done things like rape people and then they lose their brand or maybe their job like that that Mm -hmm. um so to call that cancel culture um i think is just um that the idea to gay's point that there are consequences when you hurt people um i mean i just i think that that's just so reductive of, of you know what is happening, which is just sort of calling people into account. And then there's another piece that's about whether or not um, you, you you think about scale or proportionality in relationship to what happens to people when they're accused of something. And how do you think about this in relationship to, say, due process or like really investigating and not moving too quickly to sort of judge? Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think there are things to talk about in terms of proportionality or scale. Um, I think that there's this narrative that it's some kind of progressive, pro- progressives are always canceling when in fact what we know is that the right um, often will call for the firing of people and it's resulted in the firing of people if they do things like um, defend Palestinians, right? So mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that there's a, a narrative about um the elimination of people from the public sphere that has absolutely no nuance right now. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of images, representations, so from Dr. Seuss, the site of the Dr. Seuss was canceled, or um, I was on a talk show where they were talking about Disney films or films that have, you know, certain kinds of representational histories. You know, I, as someone who studies media, um, in the U.S., like in, from a historical standpoint, like if we start eliminating everything that has um, a stereotypical or negative or problematic representation of somebody, we basically empty out U.S. culture, popular history, <laughs> like it's just, or U.S. history, like it's just our 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 media, our art, our novels, our films, our television, they're filled with this. Like it's just, it's, it's our history. So, I mean, I do think there are ways to think about where and in what context you put things. And if you always have to choose A, B, or C to put something out there, but there are lots of things that are problematic that also have structurally um, interesting things to talk about. I mean, I think, um, you know, we, I think what was move the move for, um, for, you know, Turner Classic Movies to try to think about Gone with the Wind and just have a framing mechanism mm-hmm. was like a, was a useful one. I think, you know, Jackie Stewart um, did that work and that, you know, and I think that, you know, there are lots of Black media critics that provide context when you, you think that these are things that should happen. But I'm, yeah, I'm not trying to eliminate um everything historically in U.S. culture or even in other cultures. I just think you have to sort of make choices about where you put things. So like, yeah, maybe you won't have the Dr. Seuss book with the clearly the, the representation that's, that's an Asian stereotype when you're reading it to seven-year-olds. Like maybe that's not something you want to do, right? I mean, I, I think that one of the things with the 
discourse about, uh, oh, they're canceling Dr. Seuss or like a critical race theory because we're trying to remove everything that will make people uncomfortable. Really, they're saying we want to remove things that might make white heterosexual children from heteronormative families uncomfortable. And that's a presumption that is going to make them uncomfortable, first of all. But then they don't care about people who are not this ideal child that they've decided is American. You know, they don't care if there there's a game that sort of where kids are playing uh, or have to take on the roles of slaves. They don't care if they're, you know, really negative caricatured representations of black people or Asians or um, native Americans. And then, you know, kids play games on the playground with you using these representations. Like, I mean, this is, those are things to think about in terms of pedagogy and and we should think about whether or not we teach those things it's not to say that they can't be out there somewhere if someone wants them but i don't i think we can have conversations about what's appropriate in school and that they're that you know it's never too early to teach kids about discrimination because we know from research that kids learn to discriminate early including from parents who think they're teaching their kids to not be um, discriminatory because they don't talk about race, right? They're like, oh, we never say anything racist or we don't um, we don't discriminate against gays or lesbians or trans people, but then they because they don't talk about it, they are consume they're getting through osmosis basically um, discriminatory beliefs or ways of viewing the world. So there have been studies on this. So um, but there are different ways to do it for different age groups. And um, it's really a battle right now over um, how, you know, how we deal with histories of discrimination, but also discrimination in the present and the real commitment to saying it doesn't exist. And so, yeah, I don't want to remove things because I want when people see things to be able to talk about them. And to understand what could be a problem about them or what people might be trying to do with them. Um, I think erasure is is really just makes people less smart about consuming images and dealing with conflict um, and dealing with, you know, the failure of some people to see some things and then be brilliant about others. And that's really what we see in the world. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's so much uh, there that I kind of want to, um, you know, address. I think about the the weird appropriation by Ted Cruz of, um, you know, uh, Ibram X. Kendi's anti-racist baby during the Katanji Brown Jackson uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearing and how, you know, there's just this uh, unwillingness to engage with the idea that culture might naturalize these sorts of uh, these forms of dis- discrimination. It's seen as almost absurd. Um, and the idea, too, that it would be invoked in that context especially is absurd. There is a kind of um, a ramping up, it seems, of the culture wars in this age of plenty where we're just constantly, you know, saturated by these sorts of um, representations. But I totally take your point that, like, not only if we, like, eliminate everything, we'll empty out U.S. media and culture entirely, but you'll, you also lose... Um, what you say is so crucial for for black artists in particular, like you talk about how, you know, caricature is something that is clearly uh, worked through and with, you know, you talk about how black artists use stereotypes frequently to explore, quote, painful black pasts, presents and precarious futures. Um, so you're in, in some sense, if you if you decide 
to eliminate all of these things rather than reframing them or making space for critique and conversation, you're also removing that as a resource. That has consequences as well. I mean, the one, the one of the, you talk about this in a variety of different ways in the book, um, but one way that you do it is in the kind of coda to the book where you, uh, where you talk about the popularity of Black Panther. You say there are clear stereotypes in this film, all kinds of contradictions will, really in the film. Um, but what you say there too is that the quote, binaries of positive and negative have limited analytical value. You know, so if we wanted to just decry Black Panther and say, like, we're not going to watch this film, um, then we're we're not allowing ourselves to dwell with, as you put it, African-Americans interests in rehabilitating these stereotypes um, and claiming these sorts of images as a source potentially of, of empowerment, whatever that may mean for people. You frame your reading of Black Panther in a funny way where you're like, I'm not going to make any friends with this reading or something like that. Um, you know, what, what, where did that kind of come from that like vexed relationship to the film? Well, I mean, I, I actually don't know that my relationship is all that vexed. I mean, I, I really quite love it. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't, I don't think of it as, let's say, I, I, I think my sort of framing is that I'm, you know, I'm not, um, Saying that it's necessarily peak blackness, as some people said, or that it's you know it's, it's the you know ne there's never been anything for black popular culture like this ever in, in life, and also the sort of claim about black people's creative origins, like the origins of something being the thing that will always make something most black, right? I mean, I think that Black Panther's genealogy is so fascinating in what I understand is a pretty problematic introduction um, of the character um, and the sort of jungle comics sort of early origins and how he interacted with the Fantastic Four and, you know, in a way that's pretty apolitical. And then it was a white creator, um, Donna Greger, who did, the, did a really fantastic story arc that really sort of changed comics in general, but also, um, really imagine that you could tell a story about black people and not have to have white people in it. Um, and then, which really, and that story arc with Killmonger really informed black Panther and then was like constantly revised. And then there's a lot of like the revisions that black creators did down the line. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that, that all kinds of people can participate in the transformation or rehabilitation of, of histories of, of, black representations and and um that we don't have to have an essentialist sort of understanding of it of, of who can create things for black people but also um that black people can create things that are problematic and you know there are lots of people who have issues with certain aspects of the film so even as i love the film i you know i recognize it's you know it has there's certain kinds of representational issues that we might want to think about there were some african critiques of it that i so people got really defensive of like i you know i quote patrick a cartoonist patrick Athar is like so this is this advanced civilization and they still have like physical combat for yeah. uh, to run she's like, sure. he's like you not understand how this is an offensive representation of black black leaders african leadership and and people are like oh, what does he say or what is he talking about obviously you know a b or c um i said like who is they're like who is this guy it's like well you know maybe we can think about this but we also know lots of africans loved black panther right so mm -hmm. 
there's not a homogenous black audience response. Things are not transparently always good or always bad. There are always things that have some issues and you don't have to sort of totally condemn people when they point them out. You can just say, oh, I see that and I still love it for these reasons. Or maybe you might have some critiques about people's critiques about how they're just like not well-reasoned and you can have conversations about it. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I think that there is a trend that has been heightened by social media of you know, the hot take and the the lack of careful consideration. And, you know, there is also research on this, that like the sort of social media conversations don't bring you closer to clarity. It just further, at least in terms of a, a meeting, a meeting common ground, it just, it further solidifies people's positions that they already have, right? That mm -hmm. social media is not actually good for um, uh, debate in this way, in terms of changing people's minds. Yeah, I um, feel that. <laughs> and you can see it. In the way that people turned on Turning Red, which is kind of a lovely film, you know? It really is a lovely film. And I don't know that all people turned on it. I mean, I think no, there's yeah. a, there is a specific, um, there's a religious right uh, focus on it. And then there's also just, it's not for children because it talks about menstruation. And then there's this other stuff. And I, but there are a lot of people really defending it. And I, you know, I'm really rooting for her. I loved Bao. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I thought it was just a, a lovely film and, and really does have the same basic themes that Disney always has, which is basically a kid, um, Disney and Pixar, like it's very common, a kid, um, growing up, disobeying their parents, uh, finding themselves, finding their own path. Like this is basically the, the plot of childhood narratives that we have everywhere and so um i and i i'm also really interested in the narratives like this isn't appropriate for children but <clears throat> we just see endless parents die in disney films yeah. and we see like that's fine. like star <laughs> yeah. scars like you know fratricide of it and lion king and then well and then let's think about the gender issues too like we have all kinds of things yeah. um, that are horrible. It's so funny, right? Like how it kind of, um, yeah, foregrounds these these contradictions, but not for everyone. Like, um, right. and and especially when it comes to um, you know uh, these these kind of archetypal stories that are um, presented increasingly in um, a way that appeals to difference, appeals to a certain kind of diversity within like cultural production. You know, you talk in the book about how a black Charlie Brown at the time would have been unimaginable. Um, you know, it, it's, it's theoretically the case that now we're at a point where there's, you know, films like Soul and Turning Red and so on. There's, there's at least a, a putative appeal to greater diversity in these sorts of like narratives. Um, and yet you see with the response in some spaces to a, a film like Turning Red or even Soul, that, that film was a little bit divisive. The fact that you have like, uh, for the first time, a black lead in a Pixar film, but he dies in like the first 20 minutes, you know, that, that was, that was upsetting for a lot of people. Um, but the thing that you point out in the book is, as you put it, blackness complicates excess because it's overdetermined already in the kind of white mainstream, in the white imaginary. And so caricature becomes tricky, you say, because quote, excesses and failures make them human, right? Caricature is this thing that um, is heightened. And so it's like, it's such a, it is tricky. And this is perhaps why, you know, Charles Schultz actively avoided race 
um, and racialized characters in, in his in his comic strip. Um, you know, could you speak, I guess, to, you know, where you see an alternative language maybe emerging in terms of maybe, you know, maybe especially the representation of, um, uh, you know, African-American identity within these sorts of like comic and cartoony spaces? Like there's a whole chapter in the book that talks about this, right? Black children being denied child status. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that we now we have just a lot more representations. I mean, there there's great work out there and we're seeing everywhere from like mainstream outlets. And so children, broadly speaking, from young children to um, high school, um, you know, so things like Ironheart um, and, you know, in terms of the superhero aspect, but also... Uh, you know, young adult, you know, things like Princeless and, you know, other contexts. I mean, certainly there can be more, but we we are seeing more representations. Um, but to the, the other point about um, the excess issue, I mean, I think it's, it seems even more embedded now. I mean, what I've, I've made this argument in other contexts, like I wrote an essay that talked about Princess and the Frog at one point, Um I think that one of the challenges it always is with like with black representation because it's been excess has been such a mechanism for the devaluation and dehumanization of black folks. And then there's also this desire to have black folks included in sort of, you know, Americana or just even sort of any other kind of sort of generic narrative, like, you know, why can't we have our action films or our fairy tales or our black princess? But, but these are narratives that structurally um, often have going for it um, a kind of um, these sort of limitations because of what's inherent to it is like a very Western narrative, very white narrative or one that doesn't consider discrimination and so, I mean, I liked Soul, um, but I also saw a lot of people, you know, talking about why they sort of understood as racist. And I, you know, it just, it, it, and then there, you also had a black creator behind that. And I'm mm -hmm. seeing that also sometimes with a lot of black films that people do. I'm seeing some of this discourse about master that some people are saying that it's trauma porn or, I mean, I think that there's just this really quick move sometimes to say that because this isn't the black representation that does all the things that we need something to do um, or, you know, it doesn't escape the limitations of the fact that like when you insert blackness into any narrative, it's interacting with histories of discrimination, people can be really quick to condemn it. So if by one one of the major contributions I actually really want to make with a book and I hope that people teach part of it or I, like, and I have outlets where I can talk about to a general audience about it is I just want people to slow down in this very quick condemnation of things. Um, mm -hmm. Because I just, it's, it's, it really places such limitations on black art practice. It just does. And I, um, I think that we can all be better readers um, and interpreters of these things. And it's not just around blackness. I think it's about a lot of other kinds of representations, but um, 
I'm just really disturbed by it in, in the sense that the people will just completely dismiss something because they say it like speaks to or relates to some kind of stereotype. Like people are really quick to say something's a mammy. I have another article about that too, in terms of black women's um, representations. They're a mammy or they're a Jezebel or it's a negative stereotype. And I mean, it's, it's another way of asking for like the ideal black representation at all times. And part of my critique of Schultz was, you know, we have to have black folks with flaws. I mean, because we're human and to not allow us to have flaws is to um, really not recognize our humanity too. Mm -hmm. It's like almost a return to uh, this notion in W.E.B. Du Bois of black propaganda as the, you know, the aspiration that, you know, all black art should, I guess, you know, uh, have, right? Like this idea that it it ought to be market marketing a kind of ideal blackness or something. I don't think it's ever gone away really. Which is kind of remarkable in and of itself. And like against that, your book is, is like very intentionally arguing for what you call a whimsical and loving spirit and this kind of indeterminacy and joy, um, which is, you know, it, definitely looking at a film like uh, another HBO documentary, I'll mention uh, black art in the absence of light. That's what so many of these artists are trying to, push forward is is this specific sort of um, a kind of almost confrontational playfulness, right? Like, so Kara Walker's massive sugar sphinx, for example, that like the documentary suggests white audiences will go and view and feel is is kind of fun and, and even silly and grandiose. Um, but black audiences will experience a, as a as a site of pain. But Black audiences also experience some of it as fun. I don't know if you saw the video that she did. She intentionally did this. Like she, I mean, I only saw the snippet because it was sold, I think. But uh, when it was, the, but you, she was recording people's responses. And there were also, right. the, a lot of the people she put on the video were Black people sort of being playful with the sculpture. So, I mean, I think there is just this essentialism about Black response that I, that I really want right. to, push back against about like what the sort of appropriate black responses or you lose your black card. Like, I think that there's a, um, that it's really a gross oversimplification about, you know, black identity, black interpretive practice. Um, I mean, I just, I think that we can be, we can be better about that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm still obviously learning, I'm reproducing some of these like same ideas, right? It's, it's, it's such a, like a kind of easy slippage, um, but your book does model that kind of uh, like a, just trying to go in a different direction, as you say, slowing down, um, resisting either just blanket condemnation or maybe this defensive celebration. Even, um, you know, a film like Moonlight, for example, wins the Best Picture Oscar and and suddenly is invulnerable to these criticisms that call it a certain kind of poverty porn or, in, you know, like reproducing a certain kind of black pathology in the film. Um, it can be all of these things, right? It can be kind of messier than we allow it to be. Um, so, I mean, like, the, I'll just thank you for making the time again. Um, you know, it's it's a book that is incredibly, intensely, unrelentingly critical. Um, you know, it's about just trying to be engaged. I was thinking a lot about, and, and I don't know if this is worth asking you as the, like, last question, um, but I was thinking, you know, there there could be a coda to the coda that talks about, uh, this Disney Plus show, um, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, <laughs> because Falcon becomes Captain America in that series. Yeah. Spoiler alert, right? Um, and does so act actively thinking about his role as an icon versus his position as a black man in America, 
have you seen that film, uh, that series? And and what were your thoughts on that? Of course. Well, the whole coda, of course, is that I the very first article that informed this book that uh, is in is in the book is about truth, red, white, and black. So the person he encounters is Isaiah, who I write about in the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and part of Isaiah's argument is, you know, about there wasn't space for him to represent Captain America. Um, I don't really love the series, but I was thrilled to see Isaiah show up and, and now be in the MCU. He's, there was a point where he wasn't, um, truth was not um in it was not canon some ways was sort of like one of the sort of one shot um and then sort of isaiah and then his grandson ended up being incorporated into other marvel stuff um and i think it's that question and all these debates which i do touch on briefly in the the book about um revising superheroes uh is you know always present you know what it means to have you know, underrepresented people, um, people who've been discriminated against be superheroes in the US and what are the things that they're working on or what are they focusing on? And there's all this controversy in terms of some fans about feeling like it's, they, they hate the diversity moves from Marvel and DC. And then anytime you see anything um, in science fiction, fantasy fiction culture, and you have, all, all that has to happen is like a black person shows up or an Asian or a woman who's strong and then like people hate it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that tendency um, of a certain group of people to condemn things just for the mere presence of um, heroes that are not uh, cis white guys is, you know, a troubling thing and bigger than we like to acknowledge. And, mm -hmm. um, or at least some people like to acknowledge. And I think that it, it just does speak to, again, these cultural wars, but um, how we, the, the grounds of representation, the space of representation is is a big battleground and it matters. It's, it's, it's speaking to um, all kinds of conflicts that we have culturally. And that it's a, it's a space under which you know, various politics around inclusion in the nation and political belonging play out. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I really appreciate you articulating that so perfectly. Um, uh, you know, it, it empowers those that do take these things seriously uh, to keep going and say like, this is not just frivolous fun. It is that too, um, but it, it matters that these things make like a billion dollars and that they, you know, they become events. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much, Rebecca. Thanks for inviting me.